the Star Search of Science. I'm Chris. Hey, Chris. I'm Kara. We have the pleasure today of having Bill Leonard from Northwestern University in the studio. Bill was invited here to give a lecture for the James R. Binden Biocultural Anthropology and Health Lecture Series, which we affectionately just call the Binden Lectures. He's got a, a brand new article out in American Journal of Physical Anthropology, the centennial issue. So we've just been enjoying his presence on campus and are taking the opportunity to talk to him on the podcast as well. Oh, well, welcome, I'm Bill. super jealous that I don't get to be there. Also, Bill was on my dissertation committee. Indeed, yes. Yeah, so it's <laughs> one big happy family here now. And it's, yeah. Chris, thanks so much. Kara, great to be here. This has been a terrific couple of days for me here in Tuscaloosa. Great department. And it's really been an honor to give the Binden Lecture and have an opportunity to talk a little bit about the interplay between human adaptation and biocultural anthropology a dynamic that the Jim Binden really embraced throughout his entire career and an area where I think we need more and continued engagement. Some of these interviews, we talk about a person's specific article, but your article covers 100 years. It's the, the history of the human adaptability research. And, and what you spoke to yesterday was heartwarming and also illustrative and instructive for students. So heartwarming because he really gave Jim, who, full disclosure, I quote unquote, quote, replaced. So I, I have his chair in his office and many of his books. There's no replacing Jim Binden, but when he retired, they hired me. So, and I also now work in Jim's former field site of American Samoa, and he gave me much of his data. So there are a lot of connections. What I heard yesterday and what I wonder if you can fill in the history of for listeners who may not know is some of the heritage of the Human Adaptability Project vis-a-vis Paul Baker and where you fit in. Where I fit in in terms of the human adaptability, I guess, legacy and family tree is I'm a second generation human adaptability person. I was a student of Roberto Frasancho's who, and Roberto was really one of Paul's first students. Roberto and Mike Little, University of Binghamton, were the first two students of Baker, both of whom worked on the Human Adaptability Project in Nunoa, Peru, doing that foundational high-altitude research. I also had the benefit of doing my dissertation at the same location that Roberto and Mike and Baker did that original pioneering research in Nunoa, Peru. And so that situationally is my place within the human adaptability family tree. Now, what I will say is I went off to Peru strongly steeped in the human adaptability legacy and heritage and went to Nunoa to study seasonal variation and adaptation to nutritional stress at high altitude, focusing mostly on the environmental influences and was quickly struck with how the influences of poverty, marginality, and socioeconomic stress were major factors that needed to be considered. And so in the end, with my dissertation, what I found was really the interplay between the adaptive and the biocultural. That is to say that seasonal variation in food availability continued to be a major stressor, but there was also the socioeconomic angle, that those households that were more marginal had greater seasonal variation 
population and food availability, whereas those populations, those communities, those individuals that had greater access to resources, had better nutrition, and their children grew better and were substantially taller and better nourished. And so part of my dissertation and part of the ongoing discussion that I had with Roberto about my research was looking at that socioeconomic angle as well as the, the classic adaptability environmental influences. To connect the dots then, we've interviewed Morgan Hoke, who followed you, and some of the data that you presented yesterday spoke to that point, how socioeconomics were more critical in growth patterns observed than some of the, the ideas of development or of, of genetic selection or anything of that sort. So there's a heritage, but you now have quite the legacy yourself with the number of students, Kara being one example. You know, I know some of these, but uh, brag a little bit. Who, who have you trained? Who's out there? Well, I am quite proud to, to claim, at least in part, Kara as a student, Morgan Hoke, additionally recently, Stephanie Levy, who will be taking up a faculty position at Hunter College, worked with us in Siberia, looking at human adaptability and particularly the role of brown fat in terms of raising metabolism and helping to provide adaptive patterns to cold stress in the Arctic. As well, some of my more senior students at this point were Josh Snodgrass, who worked with us in Siberia, also now a full professor at the University of Oregon, Mark Sorensen, tenured professor at University of North Carolina, who did some really foundational work focusing on looking at the rise of cardiovascular disease in Siberian populations. And Catherine Hicks, now at the University of Memphis, who did some really outstanding research looking at maternal health and subsistence work in the high Andes of Bolivia, doing some really nice work looking at peri-urban communities in the El Alto region outside of La Paz, Bolivia, and so looking at marginality and the influence of social and political factors on, on women's health there. It's always just so humbling when I realize that basically everything I've ever done comes down to Bill and Bill's work and Bill's students. And it's just, it, I don't, it gives me chills just a little bit. I don't know the story of how you got involved in Siberia. Where did that project spring up from? It's a great question, and there is a little bit of a story there, because after I finished up my PhD at Michigan, I went and did a postdoc for two years at the University of Kentucky Medical School. And one of the very first papers that I submitted for publication out of my dissertation, I submitted to the journal Human Biology, which at that point was still in 1988, 1989, still the official journal of the Human Biology Association. Well, I got my first round of reviews back on it, and then a couple of weeks later, I get a letter from the then editor of Human Biology, Frank Johnston, saying, we're creating a new journal. I'm going to become editor of this new journal, American Journal of Human Biology, which became the flagship journal for the Human Biology Association. So I'm sending all the manuscripts for human biology back to Wayne State Press, and they will eventually find an editor, and your, pub your paper may get published at some point in the future. So that, so that manuscript was in limbo until 
Michael Crawford signed on to take over as the journal editor. And I obviously had a vested interest in helping Mike get things up and running again. So I got to know Mike very, very closely during those first couple of months in the first year that he took over as editor of, of human biology. Fast forward a couple of years, I'm now an assistant professor starting my first job at the University of Guelph. This would have been fall of 1989 and out of the blue, I get a phone call from from Michael Crawford saying, just spent the summer with Dennis O'Rourke in Siberia. Russia is opening up for opportunities for research. There is a grant from NSF and U.S. Man in the Biosphere on ecology and genetic diversity of Arctic populations. Would you be interested in collaborating, doing the ecology of Siberian herders? That signed me up. We got the grant and the rest is history. The other piece that I will, will note as the follow-up on that story is our first field season in Siberia was the cataclysmic year of 1991. And we literally were in the middle of Siberia when the Soviet Union fell. So right. we entered Russia under the Soviet hammer and sickle. And by the time we left the country, we left with Moscow still having memorial tributes in the streets, tanks positioned there, and the Russian tricolors flying over government buildings. So it was an extraordinarily historic time. And again, serendipity once again, because it was a time where we could look at not only adaptation among Arctic populations in Siberia, but we were also there at a time where appreciating this historic socio-political and economic changes in Russia and in Siberia, that was another variable that we had to consider with the very yeah. data that we were collecting on, at this point, the Evenki herders of central Siberia. And what was that like going through that transition? I mean, how much did you feel it when you guys were on the ground in the field aware of it? It was, it was bizarre and hard because we were in one of these tiny remote herding cooperative villages in the middle of Siberia. And we knew that something was going on because there was a local who had a shortwave radio. And so we knew that things were collapsing. We, we knew that the coup attempt was going on, yet we had no way to get information out to friends and family that we were safe, we were fine. And so it was only a couple of weeks later when we got back to the town of Baikit, which was a relatively larger community that we could phone out to our families and let them know, hey, we're fine, we're good. And then by the time, as I say, we flew back through Moscow, it was an extraordinarily moving time because you could speak to the locals there who were very clear that this was a new era. This was a time that they were committed to not going back to the old regimes. Yeah, to be there during an actual turning point and being able to recognize that it's a turning point. Yeah, that's, that's yes. <laughs> There's yeah. probably not words for that one. And the turning point became evident in our work in central Siberia. Mm -hmm. The first time in 1991, when we went to Siberia and met with the head of the local cooperative, we went into his office in this village and behind his desk was the hammer and sickle. A year later, when we returned, the hammer and sickle plaque had been replaced by reindeer antlers, giving a signal to this regime change had even taken place down at the local level. 
That being said, what we found in terms of health transitions in that part of Siberia very much paralleled what was documented countrywide in Russia in terms of health changes in the immediate post-Soviet period. That is, even in these tiny indigenous communities, health was eroding in the post-Soviet period just as it was in the urban centers. One of the major differences, of course, was that the baseline health in these indigenous communities was poor to start with. Just as you saw declines in life expectancy in urban areas of Russia in the post-Soviet transition, so it was evident in these small rural areas with the indigenous communities. That was one of the more profound remarks that I hung on yesterday in your talk, because my impression, albeit a naive impression, of indigenous groups in the Soviet Union was that their traditional lifeways weren't necessarily respected under the Soviet government. And my, again, naive thinking would be, oh, good, now we can go back to a more traditional life way. But it sounds like the same sort of globalizing influences have now just also crept in for them as well. It's a little bit more complex as upon reflection we would expect. And that was one of the things that became clear even very early on with our work in Russia, that essentially what happened during the Soviet era is that the collective farm type of model used among rural peasants throughout Russia was superimposed onto even these small indigenous herding populations. To a certain extent, that had benefits for these indigenous populations. The What we did during those early years working with the Evenki is traveled with the helicopters that were supporting this lifeway, bringing food, resources, medical supplies, and transporting people in and out of the tiny herding encampments where they were living in tents. These were the herding brigades, bringing people or supplies back to central villages and what have you. That was part and parcel with the way things ran during the Soviet era. Once the Soviet Union was over, the infrastructure and the governmental support for all of that largely went by the wayside. And so you de facto in real time went from a situation where these herding brigades would maybe see helicopter and supply runs every week or every other week to maybe once or twice a summer. And so in real time, what that meant was recreating some of the more traditional ways of life on the fly. And part of what had happened during the Soviet era was, as Chris was just alluding to, yes, there was support from the Soviet government, but along with that was you are part of the Soviet communion. So you will speak Russian rather than the indigenous tongue. Any sort of traditional values about religion, shamanism was largely expunged. And, and so that reservoir of knowledge really only existed with the elders of the community. And so trying to find that traditional way of life again was a bumpy transition. And we saw that reflected in many measures of health, including child growth and nutrition. What we observed during the first few years after the Soviet transition is that rates of growth stunting and underweight in these Evenki children increased dramatically. Classic kind of reverse secular trends that we often see under conditions of impoverishment and economic marginality. So your other project with the Chamani, you mentioned that some of the folks 
don't really dig the modern era no. stuff and hightail it back. And they have that op- option. They which, have that option still. So you saw a benefit linked to traditionalism and lifeways and as opposed to modernization in that population that I guess wasn't reflected in Siberia? That's precisely the case. And then as I was talking about yesterday, one of the things that surprised me with our Chimani longitudinal research is I had assumed going into it that, if you will, acculturation, modernization of health and well-being is a pretty much a unidirectional process. That is, once the modern world grabs you, game over, you know, you've got to figure out how to live in that new world. And what we found, at least to a certain extent, among the Chimani is that there is some movement back in the other direction. That is, there are some families living in the more articulated communities who ultimately decide, you know, working for the loggers, eating Western foods, this is not the life that I want to live, and wind up migrating upriver into the more remote communities where the fishing and hunting is still good, where they can practice traditional slash and burn agriculture. And that has been a surprise to me, a revelation. The other clear revelation that has come out from so many pieces of our research is the point that that Chris was just alluding to. And that is, regardless of where you sit in this modernization process, holding on to some elements of traditional knowledge and traditional life way has positive implications for health and well-being and for stewardship of forest resources. Mothers who know more about indigenous plants and who know more about traditional medicine, even after controlling for economic status and all those other variables, have children who grow better, have better nutritional status, have stronger immune function, and who are less likely to be parasitically infected. Likewise, families and households that have greater knowledge of the forest are less likely to continue to expand and cut down virgin forest, are better stewards of their forest resources, and are more likely to continue to practice the shifting cultivation that preserves forest diversity. And so to me, this really speaks to the broader implications of what we do for development and global health, because it underscores that preserving that traditional knowledge is a good thing for more than just the happy touchy-feely we want to promote diversity. (laughs) It matters for well-being. It matters where the rubber meets the road. And I think that's an important message. That's huge. Your body of work is imposing and massive. You have done so much and you have seen so much. And I'm kind of wondering where you see the field of human adaptability going. What are we missing? What do we need to be doing? And how do we get there? That's a great question. I think, frankly, too often, human adaptability is framed as kind of an old school approach to looking at human biology and human health. I think human adaptability is as or more relevant today than it has ever been. Because I think what we're seeing throughout the world is there are these massive ongoing changes in health and well-being. The rise of obesity, chronic disease load, and this dual nutrition problem that we're seeing in many parts of the world. That's an issue that public health, global health still has not been able to entirely sort of wrap its brain around or figure out how we're going to deal with. What I see as a human biologist, though, is that contrary to the way that the public health world wants to look at this, that is that modernization and 
globalization is producing these problems pretty much uniformly in different parts of the world, when you actually dial down to a more fine-grained level, what you're seeing is that health changes in Siberia versus Bolivia versus the Andes with modernization doesn't proceed at the same pace in the same way. And part of that, I think, is the reflection of the interaction of how ongoing processes of globalization and, and modernization are interacting with underlying genetic, physiological, and developmental processes. That interface is going to be critical in understanding why the rise of obesity and chronic health problems in, say, India, as Jonathan Wells has talked about, is going to be a very different phenomenon than perhaps in Samoa or in Siberia. And yet no other field, I think, beyond anthropology and bioanthropology has the perspective or really the tools to be able to integrate those two worlds. And so I see human adaptability and what we're doing in human biology as critically important to understanding these larger global problems. No, it's absolutely true. We always have this tendency to use one population as the monolith for all populations, and therefore this pattern should be seen globally. And it's easy to get caught up in that because it's hard to collect data on every single population to be able to get the full picture. So I really appreciate that perspective. Thank you, Bill. It is. It's hard to collect data on so many different populations and even at a single population level. It is hard to collect the wealth of different kinds of information that are going to allow us to look at these pictures in its full richness. Here is where my bias has always been that if you want to integrate the biocultural and the adaptive, you've got to do it in a collaborative team fashion. Absolutely. This has been, frankly, one of the real joys of the work that I've been able to do in Bolivia with the Chamani Project and as well the collaborations that I've had in Siberia because it's those opportunities then to work on projects where you have collaborators with complementary skills who can each focus on their piece of the pie, and yet everybody has enough of a sense of the larger mission to hopefully allow for the individual pieces to be put together in that larger story that can be told on the biocultural and adaptive dynamics. Speaking of stories, my last question, it really goes to that, which is these are such complex issues that sometimes the data can't tell the story in the way that it needs to be told. You gave one example already, the Soviet collapse in the field illustrates the complexity. I wonder if you have stories you tell students or to bring them along and translate the narrative of the data. Along those lines, one of the stories that really comes to mind on these issues from our early work in Bolivia is an event that happened. This would have been very early on in the project where we were doing a large cross-sectional study of 50 to 60 communities. So this was basically getting some baseline information on as many Chamani communities as, as we could. That field season then, there were many of us and what we essentially did is in groups of one gringo and usually two Chamani translators, Bolivians, have a map, go out and find these individual communities, introduce ourselves and what we were doing and then proceed to do a household demographic and economic survey, getting a sense of what household dynamics was about, as well as a quick and dirty anthropometric survey assessing both adult and child health. We're sitting in, in a household talking to a woman who is sitting there breastfeeding her child. Her husband is their 
next to her, talking away, going through the interview. While the interview was going on, there's a small dog nipping at this woman's heels. Mid-interview, she hands off the baby to her husband, picks up the dog and starts nursing the dog. I tried not to... <laughs> stop the flow of the conversation, but it was, it was one of those moments where we are reminded of different cultural practices and how people of the tropical rainforest, even still today, are involved and, and linked to their environment, the physical and the social environment, in very different ways from what we have in our Western world. And appreciating that diversity and understanding the rich differences that exist within and between populations in terms of both biology and culture is a critical piece of our understanding of the world and I think our coming together as, as human beings. One of the things that I reflect on a lot is how tremendous Tremendously fortunate, I feel, to have been able to do the work that I've been able to do, work with colleagues and students over the course of my career. It's, it's a tremendous blessing and being able to, to really see different parts of the world and really see the shared humanity across these very, very different physical and social environments is, is a tremendous blessing. And I, I appreciate it ever more with each passing year. Well, it's been our pleasure as well. And unfortunately, I have to wrap this up on us, Kara, because... I think Bill ended it on an absolutely perfect note. You it, I, that. I couldn't agree more. And I don't want him to miss his plane. <laughs> or any of the things so we can keep on with the blessings so we want to thank you for joining us on the sausage of science i've been chris and i'm kara and bill how can folks get a hold of you to learn more about the research i know it's easy to find you but maybe you have a special secret bat code account <laughs> well i mean if you've got additional questions emailing me at my northwestern address w-leonard1 at northwestern.edu is great. And I hope to continue the conversation. Wonderful. It's been a lot of fun. I'm at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter. I'm at Kara Akabak on Twitter. And we're representing the Human Biology Association Publicity Committee. And we will talk to you all again soon. Great. Thank you all so much. Thank you again, Bill. It was great talking to you. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. Yep. Bye-bye.